Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show takes you to those places where you have those mastermind meetings and aha moments that can change your life, change your trajectory, or at least bring you a little bit closer to serving from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. We don't have a $25,000 Hollywood studio. Won't spend the money. Don't care. In fact, sometimes we'll do these in public places. You'll hear ambient noises in the background, conversations from a nearby table, cars driving by, birds chirping in the trees. But today, I'm broadcasting to you from our sumptuous almost empty living room here in my apartment in beautiful Las Vegas, Nevada, known to some as the hottest city in America. And today, our topic of conversation is one that not only is very near and dear to me, but a theme that just seems to be emerging a lot lately for some reason. The title is Only 27 Years to Become an Instant Success, What Flipped the Switch?, to share with us today some insights on that, we have somebody who I already know. If you follow my other podcast, The Brilliance Plus Passion Project, she was on it about a year and a half ago, I think. Her name is Lana McGara, and she is an award-winning international best-selling author and ghostwriter of 40 titles through traditional publishing with a million books sold. Lana is also a spiritual luminary and energy healer. Her 27 fiction books are impact-driven, and she teaches others how to write impact-driven fiction as well. She's been teaching how to write fiction for 20 years. Writing under the name Rosie Dow, D-O-W, she won the National Christie Award for her historical novel, Reaping the Whirlwind, in in 2001, and her mystery series, Colorado, sold more than 250,000 copies. She has two new titles coming out in in this year, in 2023, Reaping the Whirlwind under the Rosie Dow pen name and Shaken But Not Stirred under her government name, Lana McGara. So go to her website and you can see all this stuff. And I'm going to show you where to find all this at the end of our conversation today. But Lana, Lana, and if you could please correct uh, a guy who has seen too much and is not remembering how to pronounce it on how to say the name come on in the weather's fine thank you so much adam and it's lana 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 Lana. okay okay you know uh and it's it's just it's just a fact of life we know so many people and we have so many things going on and even when we think we have all the answers we always have something to learn one of the joys of podcasting is getting to let people see you from a meta perspective, which includes the imperfection. So, no, we're not going to go out and edit the part that I need to be reminded how to pronounce your name. Uh, that's not going to happen. I 
I'm perfectly fine with people saying that because I'm just a guy like everybody else. And that ties into what we're going to be covering about 27 years of becoming an instant success. So before we dive into some of the lessons learned, some of the formulaic things, some of the things that people need to know to be able to achieve this success, I'm going to ask the question that I ask everybody else when they first come on Business Creators Radio, which is, I read your official bio. It's so impressive. I'm not sure I'm worthy to be here. And this is my show. Ha, ha, ha. Now, in your own words, tell us a bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. Wow, it's been a long journey, 27 years. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So... Really, I just started out with a passion for reading. I started out as a reader, an avid mystery reader. And uh, as a middle school student, fourth and fifth grade, I literally demolished my my library at my school, which was very large. And so back then, I got a lot of ribbing. You know, my mom called me a bookworm. And, you know, everybody always saw me with a book in my hand, but little did I know back then that I was actually doing part of my 10,000 hours of learning how, what I loved, how it was created Yeah. and who was a good writer, who wasn't and so forth. Never dreamed I would write myself at that point, but uh, it's been one of those things where I just had to continually teach myself uh, how to do what I love because when it comes to this craft of writing fiction, yes, you can learn techniques and there are a lot of good materials out there and I teach writing myself, but you have to practice. You have to learn it and feel it and improve it, you know, yourself by getting down there to the keyboard and just doing it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you. Now, it's funny, you and I had maybe not the same experience, but I think there's some correlations. When I was growing up, I loved to read books. My idea of fun, after school fun was to go to the library and read through the encyclopedias. I mean, I was really, in, I was really into this stuff. And by the time I was, say, 11 or 12 years old, I was already started with working on a fictional novel, uh, which is permeated into a few different forms over time the last the you know the last time I really put a lot of energy into it is uh about three years ago when I wrote wrote a Wikipedia style article about the protagonist before that I put a good bit of time into into college and it keeps evolving where we are essentially right now is it is a it is a by is it is the first part of what's going to be a trilogy And the first part of the trilogy is the biography of a fictional Latin American dictator. Uh, And it's going to actually be a tome about how I would build an optimal society if I were given a blank slate. So basically have him do it. So the challenge I have is when I worked on it before, I always had him winning like he like anything he touched turned to gold. And through subsequent discoveries, I, I I even showed a few samples of some of the writing to a few people and the feedback came again back again and again is 
this guy wins all the time. That's really boring. You got to beat him up. I don't want to because I love him. <laughs> yeah. I, so, so, I, I so this thing will probably roar to life when I when I uh, get a real sadistic streak and I uh, and I say and I say and I say look Sebastian because that's his name. Mm-hmm. You're about to get whooped. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I call that putting the character through their paces. You have yeah. to let them show what they're made of, but not only show the world, but show themselves what they're made of. Yeah. Absolutely. 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 So, uh, and again, I've decided it's going to be a trilogy. The only thing I know is the second part of the trilogy is going to be about his son. I don't know what the third part is yet. Uh, somehow I have to catch it up from 1917 to present day. I'm not sure how I'm going to do it, but I'll find a way to fill 106 years. And and one version of my biography, it says I've been working on this for 30 years and I'll finally finish it when things ever slow down. And then I put in parentheses, it won't, but we'll see what happens. All right. <laughs> well, it's just like having children. If you wait for the perfect time, you'll never have any. So same thing goes for writing a novel. All right. So I just, I just revealed to you that uh, I've been, I've been striving at this for, oh, about 33 years and counting so far, and you are at 27. So before I turn you loose, and that's essentially what we're going to do with this interview, is we're going to mostly turn you loose here, because I know you have a lot to share, is I love to tell the story about William Shatner. You know, he starred in the Star Trek TV series. He starred in TJ Hooker. He had other shows. He uh, did all kinds of things things uh both in the on the small and big screen and he won his first emmy at age 73 for a guest appearance on a show that had already been canceled wow i'm gonna say that again he won his first emmy at age 73 for a guest appearance on a show that had already been canceled so if you haven't got your trophy yet why would you not keep going? I mean, this is this is after this is after Captain Kirk. This is after T.J. Hooker. He got the award for playing the Denny Crane character as a guest appearance on the TV show called The Practice before it became a supporting character on Boston Legal, for which he also won an Emmy. So for all those years of accomplishment, all those years of struggle, all those ups and downs, he essentially won two Emmys for playing a character that just repeated his own name. Mm. Well, that brings you back to the old adage, you've got to do what you love. You've yeah. got to do it for love. You can't do it for recognition or money or anything else. You have to do it for love. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, what is it? Tell us a bit more. And you gave me some guidance in the green room on where to go with this. So I'm following the lead that you gave me. Uh, so tell us a bit about, you know, some things about your past. It may be a little bit more what we've shared so far and how it out. You actually turned that to your advantage. Well, I started writing after I graduated from college Okay. I had a degree in education. I'm, a, I'm actually an English teacher. <laughs> All right. I always say for my sins, but um, I never thought of writing till after college because I had 
a lot of children in a short space of time. And I was all, I was bored. I was just doing housework and laundry and so forth. And I needed an outlet, you know, mental stimulation. Um, so I took a, a correspondence course in uh, writing for children. And that was the first taste that I ever had of creative writing. I had been doing academic writing and I didn't like it. So when I realized that I had a knack for writing stories, I was really intrigued. But I wrote for 14 years without getting a single word published. Uh -huh. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. But just like, you know, this William Shatner, his experience, you, you just like it. So you just keep going. And uh -huh. And you teach yourself and you learn a little and you get rejected and then you figure out why and you, you know, you just keep on, keep on keeping on. And eventually I got the right information, the right feedback and the, the switch flipped and I got my first writing contract okay. after all those years. So that was the way I got started. I got started in the school of hard knocks and get knocked down and keep getting back up. I quit probably at least half a dozen times in that period of time, but I couldn't, I couldn't uh, quit. I had to go back. I, I, I would do it without even realizing I'd throw it in a drawer and slam the door. And next thing you know, six months later, all of a sudden it's spread all out on the table. Like, what am I doing? It's out here on the table. <laughs> yeah. So that was part of it uh, was just this inner I don't want to say compulsion, but it was an inner urge, an inner impulse to keep going. Um, I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. And it was me time sitting down writing at my computer and, you know, kids were out playing and I was writing or whatever. So um, I learned that it's so important when you're working in your passion in the area of your passion that you constantly improve, but also don't take yourself too seriously. Don't make everything a crisis, just continually improve, keep putting yourself out there and follow your dream. And eventually you will break through. You don't have to imitate somebody else. I think that's probably the worst thing you can do, but still, you know, to get better, and so once I got published, then things started to go into higher, you know, high gear for me, but that really wasn't what did it. So the story continues. So for the next, from 96 until 2009. So what is that? Uh, 13 years, 13 years. Thank you for the math. Um, I was writing a lot and put out about 20 titles in that period of time. I won a national award in 2001, you know, what you said in the bio there. And so my career looked like it was really taking off. And once I won the award, uh, my publisher hired me to begin to coach promising writers who almost had a book, but not quite. And I would coach them and bring them forward. I started the writing, the novel writing course because I was inundated with people wanting me to help them. So I thought, well, I'll just write a course. I can take a course. And it looked great, but in 2009, I ended up with a divorce after a 30-year marriage and everything flatlined. 
everything in my life flatlined at that point. Right. I, write, I would sit down to write. I couldn't write an article. I couldn't write a letter. I just couldn't do it. I, I was had nothing. And right. so for about five years, I floundered um, six, five, six years. I got different jobs, you know, just trying to figure out what I, what am I going to do with my life now with this major shift? And part of it was, who am I now? You know, when I was writing in my first iteration, I knew who I was and I was coming from this perspective, but you know, then the divorce happened and all these other things in my life just totally blew up. I mean, I was literally with what I could put in my car and went and rented a, a little old, a very old mobile home yeah. in the woods in South Carolina. And what I got in my car is what I owned. And my siblings, my, my sister and my brother brought me furniture. So I would have a couch and a bed and I was, you know, square one back to square one. So to figure that out took me a while. Well, a night in uh, 2011, I met someone who connects people with ghostwriters. So that was a little door opening, a crack there that I could write somebody else's material. I didn't have to write my own, you know, coming yeah. from this blank slate that I was. Um, and I started doing some writing for others. And in 2015, I went full time as a ghostwriter. And from 2015 to 2022, that's that's how I supported myself. I'm still ghostwriting somewhat at this point, but because of COVID and the lockdowns and all that, I had time to write the novel that had been swirling around in my head for five years. And I, I was able to sit down and write it and I got it done. And so that book is coming out at the end of this year, Shaken But Not Stirred. Um, this, it's a fiction story, but it's a story of a stalker. I had a stalker in 2014. All I right. got involved with someone who was a psycho. And, you know, not only did I have to figure out what I was going to do as far as earning a living, I had to figure out how am I going to navigate? I haven't been in the dating world, you know, since I was 17 years old. Here I am uh -huh. now in my 50s. How am I going to do this too? Yeah. <laughs> And, and it's it's it's, it's gone it's gone a lot worse since you were seventeen. I mean, hell, I remember I remember what I when I got involved in it. You, if you met somebody online, you still made up the story about how you bumped into each other in the produce aisle in the grocery store because meeting people online was weird. And we've actually gotten to a point where um, meeting somebody in person is weird. It's like what he approached you in the grocery store and asked you where the oranges were. What kind of psycho does that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. So and, 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 the, and the other and the other problem we have with uh, a lot of dating sites today is I, I mean I remember back when those were legit dating sites and it was actually very easy to meet people like meet them in person mm -hmm. and what was coming to now is that so many. Um, actors uh so i mean uh you know such as you know sex workers uh marketers of that type who've turned them into promotion platforms for their own businesses now you have to do this whole separate the wheat from the chaff i, I mean in my relatively recent experiences i've had three cases where 
I thought I was on a regular date, and then she and then she gave me her hourly rate after about oh, an hour in. <laughs> oh my god! When I was uh, when I was doing online dating, uh, the first thing they would say to me is, "You actually look like your picture." I, you're the first person I ever met that looked like their picture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, I didn't meet this guy on online dating. I met him at a meetup. I went to a meetup group and um, he was one of the organizers. So I met him in person and, uh, you know, it became an entire whole drama. And that's what I mean when I say impact driven fiction, you take your life lessons, weave them into a fiction story with made up characters and your story becomes very dynamic. So that was one of the techniques that I learned in that period of time was how to find the kernel of a story from your own life lessons, because you bring your energy and your wisdom into it and your character can react and grow in very real ways because you know what, you know, what goes on inside a person when you experience certain things. Uh, how to fictionalize it so it doesn't become biographical, but yet you you keep the power, you know, of the situation and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was, I knew when I was going through it and this went on in 2014, all the way through 2015, by the time we got done with court. So there was a two year period where I went through abject terror. Uh-huh. And I got involved with the legal system because, of course, I called 911. He was trying to break into my house. He was beating on the door till a curtain rod fell off the wall. Oh, yikes. Um, scared the living daylights out of me. And, you know, then when the police show up, now you've opened up another can of worms because the way they treat the victim is not exactly pretty. And the court, you know, the way the courts are set up and so forth. So, anyway, th- I knew when I was going through that, that this was the kind of drama that makes good fiction writing. Uh-huh. And so I was documenting what, I, what happened. I was remembering and giving myself, you know, through the journal key phrases and things that would trigger those memories in me to bring this back. So, you know, it wasn't for um, whenever I go through anything in life, I look at my life as a potential um, garden to get these beautiful ideas that grow up, right? We yeah. all have them. Well, yeah, you know, you think about, uh, you mentioned how people are treated in these cases. Uh, th- here's something I've been saying for years, and it sounds however it sounds. And if somebody says, what did you say? I'll repeat it because I, I stand by it. Uh, if you tell me that you are, that you are a victim of domestic violence, I will believe you more if you show me a picture of your mugshot from the time you got arrested. And the reason I say that is because so many people who have been the victim of domestic violence situations end up being the ones who get put in the system because the the law enforcement shows up right around the time they're fighting back. Yes. Yes. It was a because I, I raised six boys. So yeah. it was it was like a truism in our house. You hit back, you're going to be the one that gets caught. Because Yeah. <laughs> you, you see what I mean? Now, we laugh about uh-huh. this, but then we see 
how then we see what happens. I mean, because yeah. I mean, I mean, think about a domestic violence call. Um, and we're just going to say, I mean, because men can be victim of domestic violence just as much as women can. So I'm not going to sure. take sides on that. But uh, we're just going to use the man is aggressor, woman is victim uh, dynamic, just so I can tell, I can make the analogy. Uh, so the man flips out, uh, you know, he smacks her around, pushes her around, and then she manages to get him calmed down enough so that she can quote unquote order a pizza. And if you're familiar with what I'm talking about, you know, that's the code, the coded call to 911 where you pretend like you're ordering a pizza and they have the conversation with you uh, that only you hear. Mm -hmm. So he thinks that you legit ordered a pizza. And then he says, oh, you pulled that little stunt on me. And he goes after her again. But this time she's got the frying pan and she's swinging. That's when the police show up and they say, hey, you, 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 you violent person, swing, swing in the frying pan, put your hands up. And then, and then the actual aggressor says, she came at me, she just went nuts. Yeah. So did you, did you notice how I got elevated and excited when I told that? Because I was feeling viscerally mm -hmm. what it's like to be the victim in a situation, be but be on fairly painted is the aggressor just because the knights in shining armor showed up at that one specific moment where it might have looked like the opposite of what was really going on yeah and how many people whether it's domestic violence situations whether it's getting accused of something when they were in school or at work or something have have had that sense of people just create writing stories about them as if they're not even in the room and then calling them crazy for daring to say, oh, no, that actually happened to me, and that's not how it went. How many people do you know can relate to that? Oh, thousands, hundreds of thousands. Uh-huh. Yeah. I would say everybody. Yeah. Statistically, everybody has faced that in their lifetime, whether it's a major thing or a minor thing, but enough so that it affects their psyche. Absolutely, because I came from a, I grew up in a home where there was domestic violence. So yeah. I, I grew up with that. And when I saw someone acting in certain ways, you know, that took me back to my PTSD from a child. And uh, to say that I was terrified, you know, is totally an understatement. Um, so basically, you know, I, I started to do the ghostwriting and working with some really amazing people because. My personal writing is fiction, but I'm for the last since 2015. So for the last eight years, I've been writing memoirs and business books and leadership. And um, I wrote two books for two medical doctors. Uh, so personal development, there's a lot of different topics. And I've had some great experiences working with with people who have wonderful ideas and supporting them. And during that period of time, I have been active in social media. I have still had my mailing list, you know, from back in the day, never let that go. Uh -huh. And I've been building relationships. And, and it wasn't until really this year that I realized what a gift it was that I haven't been writing my own material because I could be my own authentic self. I love helping people. I love connecting, introducing people to each other and, and so forth. And so I've just been doing that naturally as a part of my personality. 
And I've been making some really great relationships and people know me uh, aside from the marketing. They just know me. And so that has been tremendous for me to now coming back to my own material to see the difference when I was at the beginning, because I, I took internet marketing courses back all the way back to 2004, Alex Mandozian, how to do a telesem a teleseminar uh, was the first one I ever took. And I was putting my writing courses out, you know, in that area. And it was such a different energy of when I was marketing materials and when I was just relaxing and getting to know people and, you know, letting myself just be my own authentic personality. And then when I did have a book coming out, it was so easy to contact some people and let them know what was going on. But I did, uh, I did have a strategy. And is it okay if I share the strategy? Please share the strategy. <laughs> okay. Because it's fiction, I had to become creative with, with it. And as I was planning this last fall, thinking about how can I promote my books, their fiction, well, there's been a couple things that happened. First of all, I relaunched my fiction writing course because I shut that down too. I shut everything down. And that was a very successful course. And so I brought that back. So now I'm teaching people and the course is running right now. It's not open for enrollment at this moment. I think I might bring it back in the fall for another round, but um, to just get into the space of saying, I teach people how to write impact-driven fiction and marketing the course put me back in the fiction world as a fiction writer, not as a ghostwriter which I was doing before, but I wasn't marketing myself as a ghostwriter. I have people sending me business. I don't need to market myself. Other people right. are doing that. So that was the first step was to get that course back out. And then there have been some other things that I've done as well. And that is getting active in writers groups, which they always tell you to do. But I always felt like it was um, self-serving. I didn't like the feeling of being self-serving. To, you know, hobnobbing with people so you can see if they'll, you, what you can get out of them. I just didn't like it. But now coming from a different space, because now it is book number 42. It's not book number one or even book number 10. It's book number 42. And there's a calmness about, a groundedness about uh, how I feel going into a space. Yeah, yeah, so, loser only book 42 because remember <laughs> if you're not number one you're not just a first loser yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then another thing i did is i i realized that as long as i'm teaching and sharing that is also enrolling so i went into some various different groups so well i've been speaking as well i got back out in the speaking world and i just i spoke on a platform at harvard in January. And it was a gift. It was a gift from the universe that got me into that space because I had canceled. Something happened. I had to cancel a previous engagement. A person called me up and said, we have a space at Harvard. Do you want it? I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? 
no, I'm going to turn that down, you know. <laughs> um, so to get back in the speaking space, but then um, in among the speakers uh, platform that I'm in, Blue Talks, there's a lot of authors in there. Almost everybody that is in that platform is also an author. And so I opened up this Facebook group, which is called Lana's Launch Team. Right. Where I'm teaching people how to do a book launch. And it's not anything formal. It's just backstage access. When I do something, I'll put it in the group. This is what I'm doing. This is the link to the resource I'm using. You can watch me do this. You know, if you go over here, you'll see what I'm doing over there. And so by opening this backstage access to my tactics, um, the only thing I ask for people who join the group is when I'm ready for my launch, just share, just share what I'm doing. That's all I'm asking. And you're welcome to have this massive amount of information because on the back side of this whole thing, Adam, almost a million in sales now. <laughs> right. I mean, I do know how to market. Uh, that's one thing I do know how to do. <laughs> So um, to be able to give people access to that totally free of charge, just in exchange for, you know, support when my time comes for the launch. So those things have really worked so well. And I have had people just signing up because they're interested, because they see the value of it. <clears throat> and I'm giving value over there, you know, in the group, um, it's been such a blessing. And I say the word blessing, you know, with, with purpose, because I feel blessed when people come in and then we have the interactions and they tell me what they're doing. And one, one guy that I really like over there, he said, it's my first, no, it's his second. It's my second book. And I still feel like I'm making it up. And I said, <laughs> it's 42 for me. And I still feel like I'm making it up. <laughs> There's no manual. I mean, you can learn some things, but we all just try a bunch of stuff and see what works. And because what worked yesterday may not work today. And yeah. so we're all just, <laughs> we're all just making it up as we go along. And, yes, but, uh, yes. But again, second place is really first loser. Uh, and being number 42, are you kidding me? <laughs> And, 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 here, and here's the thing about this. When I launched my book, Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy on Groundhog Day in the year 2018, I found uh, some interesting subcategories of subcategories to uh, put the book in. I got 20 of my friends to buy it so that I could get my international bestseller badge. And back then, pump and dump was the way to go. Uh, what has evolved, if we're just going to speak about Amazon for a moment, is they tend to favor books that can show consistent patterns of sales which means if you can keep delivering the buyers over and over and over again they're more likely to highlight the book promote the book and it's just algorithmically going to perform better to deal with the fact that being a bestseller is not a is not something you can accomplish through a quick pump and dump anymore we now have the uh, number one hot new release which has become the new hey look at me i'm a bestseller So yeah. the, and I've spoken with people at Amazon about this. They're fully aware of what authors do to make themselves quote unquote international bestsellers. And they have no problem with that. At the same time, Amazon is a business 
And their business model was based on people coming back to Amazon again and again and again. And every time they come back, they end up often buying more than they originally came to the site for. So they prefer authors who can keep delivering. The reason I bring this up is, yeah, you were down there at number 42, but look at these six-digit number of copies you ended up selling. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's really the yeah. sales. That's why I always say X number of sales, not, you know, all these pumped up tags and numbers, you know, that people throw around because I've been in the book world now for all these years. You know, I want people to know there's some groundwork here. There's reality. There's, there's figures, you know, that are coming through that are people buying not just a pumped up number because truth be told, and I'm going to reveal some little backstage <laughs> information. When you see books that are coming out, you know, New York times and so forth, the big name publishers, you know, the New York big guys, they put out the word to the bookstores and the bookstores order massive amounts of these books massive amounts of copies and i have been in bookstores where i've seen them stacked as high as your waist from yep. the floor all the way up a big stack of the same title just sitting right there in the floor and there may be six or eight of them in the store and then as soon as the window which is six weeks as soon as the six weeks window goes by they return them uh-huh and those numbers are still in sales they are still in sales. They don't count the refunds. They just count the sales. Yeah. And yeah. That, another, another thing is I, I remember this from um, a couple years ago, and I'm going to use the example I'm going to use just because it shows the emotions that get into it. Uh, when Donald Trump Jr. released the book Triggered, uh, they found out, they found stacks of these books in the offices of some conservative organization. It might have been Turning Point. I'm not sure which. And they said, ha, 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 that book became a New York times bestseller which it did because he got his buddy to buy all the books and i'm and i said yeah that's actually how it works that that's how a lot of bestsellers are created is they sell a bunch of books to organizations and you just point out the other side of it is that the sales include and this is something people don't think about the sales include the deliveries to book so stores where they get resold it's considered a sale because it was shipped to the bookstore. Yes. Not because somebody actually bought it. Right. Right. So with my figures, I always quote what was on my sales sheet when I get my, you know, my royalty reports, not some nebulous bestseller something or other out there, which is basically meaningless uh, on any arena, whether it's Amazon or, you know, these others. Um, so it's not, I mean, if you want that and it does open doors for people to get speaking engagements and so forth, if you have that on your book, bestseller, whatever, um, if that's what you're after, fine. You know, you're building your business, you want that credibility. But, you know, my focus was more about getting more readers. I want people yeah. to read my stuff because it's fiction. I, uh -huh. I don't have a business to sell products on the back end. So, 
you know, it's a different dynamic with fiction than it is with uh, with nonfiction or business books and so forth. But I want to encourage fiction writers. It can be done. There is a way to do it. There's a reason why certain fiction writers are everywhere and their books are flying off the shelves by the millions. Yeah. There is something to, you know, what they're doing, how they're structuring it to make that happen. They may or may not be a better writer than you are. They may or may not be. There are some runaway bestsellers and I read their material and I go, who is the editor? <laughs> yeah. I want to know. <laughs> and yet they sell. They sell. Oh, I've sold a lot more copies of the Groundhog book since, since the launch. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I, I went for the badge so that I could repeat the phrase international Amazon bestseller in uh, all my biographical statements. I'm coming out and saying this because it's not exactly a secret, but yet what's interesting is when I told family and friends who are not involved in entrepreneurship that I had an international Amazon bestseller, oh my God, they, they thought I'd finally arrived and hit the big time. And so I played, and I played along like the, like the bashful overnight success who finally made it. Meanwhile, I'm thinking, yeah, that afternoon I checked off that box. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, the afternoon of Friday, February 2nd, I was uh, at a cigar shop uh, just messaging people saying, hey, you got a dollar. Can you go to Kindle and buy my book, please? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, I, and I get a lot of messages like that from people on launch day, friends of mine, uh, uh, yeah. in fact, including some of the serial authors. Uh, as soon as as soon as I see their name show up in my direct messages, it crosses my mind. All right. So I guess they need me to buy another book. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with supporting people. There's nothing. No, wrong no, it's all good. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, you know, had to make up my own mind about my career because I got really, at one point, I got really discouraged when I went into some of these big bookstores and saw you know, the big box bookstores and saw the politicking that was going on and the, mm -hmm. you know, the way the publishers were favoring certain authors and forget, totally forgetting about others who, who were totally worthy, but yet yeah. they had their favorites and had to realize that this is my, my career. It's my life. It's not the publishers. They've got their agenda. I've got mine. I'm going to take my ball and play ball. I'm going to play ball my way and I'm going to be happy because writing makes me happy and there's no way to lose if you're happy. So, you know, that was really my approach. And so my hiatus here, my 12 year hiatus of writing my own material um, really has helped me to embrace where I am in the world what I'm doing to come at it from a contribution standpoint, rather than asking for a favor standpoint of, you know, buy my stuff. And it has been amazing. I, I am really loving this side of the equation. It's been great. Wow. Uh, that's, I mean, and, and, and to tell you that, that is really, 
really inspiring. So what are, you know, we spoke earlier about some of your own journey and some of the harrowing aspects of it. So what are some suggestions you have for somebody who, you know, aside from writing a book, obviously, who wants to take that leap from victim to victor? Part of it is to shift your perspective and stop asking for permission. I think there's a part of us when we're starting out in some venture that we maybe haven't done before yep. or maybe not in the capacity, like you're moving from corporate to going, you know, freelance or whatever. And we, we get this idea that we have to ask permission, like raise your hand and uh-huh. please, please, please. And I went to so many business networking meetings when I was in that period uh, where I was, you know, trying to figure it out. And I felt that way. And I saw so many other people who felt that way, rather than just saying, this is my identity, not I'm raising my hand and hope you pick me, but to just stand up and say, this is who I am. And I I love helping people. And maybe, maybe you could be one of them. Let's explore. Because when I stood up in the first networking meeting, I remember it so well, because I was sitting at my desk and spirit just said to me, start telling people you're a ghostwriter. Stop telling people that you'll write their LinkedIn profile. <laughs> spirit said, spirit said to tell people you're a ghostwriter. Spirit, ghost. <laughs> I never put that together before. <laughs> So the next time I went, I stood up and I said, I'm a ghostwriter. I help people write their book. And everybody turned and looked at me like a new dawn came on their face. You know, like they never saw me before, although they've been seeing me every week for who knows how long, Mm -hmm. Um, because I've been hiding my identity. I'm a writer. I'm a good writer. I've written a lot of books and helped a lot of people and to just own who I am rather than raising my hand saying, pick me. I think that is a huge shift of perspective because when we go into business, we do it because we have something inside of us that we have to offer. So let's own it in a calm, just a calm, confident way to just like to say, my name is Lana just the same energy. I'm a writer or I'm a graphic designer or I'm a podcast host or whatever it is with that, with the energy of identity, changing your approach to your identity and owning your identity. So that was a major shift for me. That started me into the ghostwriting world where I was actually started to, you know, earn a living. That was when I first started to be able to earn a living. Um, And so there was that. And that helped me come down, you know, through these 10, 12 years now Uh to say, I'm a fiction writer and a fiction teacher. And I love it. It comes out of my heart. It comes out of my soul. And, you know, there's nothing I would rather do then sit down and write a story or help someone else write a story. Because after being an editor and, you know, writer for all these years, I have a feeling for it, a feeling that I get when I read someone's work. And, 
you know, I can give them feedback that is sound. It is real because I'm in my groove with this, with this method. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So think about, and, and this comes up a lot on this show about how we are programmed when we're raised. Uh, and part of that has to do with the extent to which we have to ask for permission or we have others write our stories for us while we're in the room as if, and, uh, as if we're not even participants. Uh, so th- let's think about this for example. Um, when you were a kid, Laura, you were growing up, some adult wanted you to answer some question. And you said, I don't know. What was their response to you? Well, they would just look at you with this kind of slanty look in their eye, like, what do you mean you don't know? Uh Uh-huh. Right. Okay. Now, what happened if they asked you a question and you gave an answer that they didn't like? Well, kind of the same thing, you know. You're going to get negative, even more negative feedback then. For For example, they might say, Oh, you just have an answer for everything, don't you? Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? You say you don't know because you really don't know. And they tell you, oh, I don't know is an answer. Isn't an answer. Mm-hmm. How, how do you not know? But then when you do know, but it's not what they want you to say. Oh, well, you just have an answer for everything. With those two factors alone, can you see how an adult might find themselves challenged at a subconscious level, being able to simply own the fact that they have a story that can be put in a book that other people might be interested in reading? Absolutely. That is one of the biggest holdbacks there is because we, we seem to be programmed to try to figure out what the other person wants you to say before you get up the courage to say it. Yeah, You want to kind of feel out the room, right? Before you put your material out there. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, now, what was I, I going to say? Yeah. So as far as my own journey with this fiction novel, which has evolved and taken so many different draft forms, you know, I, uh, I'm going to come back to that in a second. But, you know, I told you that I love to read when I was growing up. I had my own library. My idea of after school fun was going to the local library and reading these encyclopedias and their collection of the who's who and current events anthologies. Those were some of my favorites. And uh, boy, I was, I was the smart kid who loved to read books until, until I gave an answer to some question. It wasn't the question, the answer I was supposed to give. And you know what they would say to me? They'd say, you read too many books. Why don't you go have a life? See, I was a smart kid until that intelligence empowered me to question others. Mm. Then it was, why are you such a nerd? Why don't you, why don't you go live life instead of reading all the time? Why do you need to know all this stuff? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That, that has hindered me quite a bit, Adam, in dating. Yeah. <laughs> it really has because I remember so well, I was dating someone and I was talking about some fun fact. It was just a fun trivia fact that I mm-hmm. thought was interesting. To me, it wasn't, you know, it was exciting. Oh, I found out this. 
and and the you know the guy said well now i know <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so yeah that 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 is what we might call harbinger mm-hmm yeah yeah well it was kind of the death knell of that very short relationship because if you can't express you know your ideas and be excited about what you're excited about then what's the point seriously seriously i mean goodness goodness gracious and you know i think that you know people put expectations on things uh, you know you know we're seeing more and more of in the dating world is uh, this isn't really something i've gotten into much uh but it became really popular during covid and hasn't really gone away is the idea of virtual dating Mm. nowhere it's not you just you meet somebody online is the entire relationship is online and uh and people say oh that that's weird how can you be in a relationship with somebody and haven't met them and i remind people do you remember back in the day when you didn't meet your spouse until what your wedding day because it was all organized for you seems to me this virtual dating thing is a step up from the way it was Yeah, you have to pause and think about that for a second. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about that because I'm not sure if it's a step forward or a step back. Actually, I think it's a little of each. Yeah, it, it is in a way. I mean, I can see having a, a friendship with somebody and I can see how a friendship can develop actually pretty deeply just through online communication. But if we're talking about life partners here, we're talking about the mating and dating aspect of it. There's a difference between... The person who's you know them online and the person who's going to show up when you meet them oh yeah and then there's there's lifestyle and habits and you know things that the nitty-gritty of the daily life stuff you know that needs to match so that both people feel comfortable um if you know I, i'm a writer i like quiet if if i'm around somebody that has to have the you know noise loud noise in the house or even any noise in the house i i can't function so just something that simple you know is so important but you probably wouldn't know that if you're on a zoom call they're going to turn off the sound because they want to hear so you know that is uh so important to be able to see how each other lives in a normal setting and it's it would be kind of good to do that at the beginning, don't you think? Before you get emotionally involved. <laughs> right. I would. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And so to me, and this is why I took it down this road, is to me a big piece of being an author, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, whether you're writing under your government name or a pseudonym, is... And I'm going to ask you a really provocative question that you, even you didn't see coming in just a moment uh, as we wrap up here. I think a lot of it gives you the opportunity to find your own platform for self-expression that everyday communication just doesn't give you. Oh, absolutely. That is so important because no matter what medium you're using for expression, fiction or a story even you know if it's a case study or an example but stories land in people's hearts 
And that's why I love it so much. You can affect people's lives for the good with a story. And as a speaker, they always tell you, tell stories because the stories are so powerful for change. And when you have an entire book that is a multifaceted, multi-charactered, long form story, there are so many opportunities for you to bring forward, you know, the nuggets that you've learned in your life to help someone who's reading that to get understanding and to expand their awareness, maybe shift a perspective or gain some compassion or whatever it is. And there are many things that could happen in the same book in the same novel, but yeah. uh, that is such a beautiful way to put out there the insights that you have come to in your life in a meaningful way. Yeah. So here is the final question. And again, you may or may not have seen this coming. I think you didn't, but this is actually something I'm going to be experimenting with more and more uh, as a matter of uh, simple social investigation. Do you believe that, and it's a two-part question, do you believe that people are obligated to use the name their parents gave them? And furthermore, should it be part of society's ritual that when they reach a certain age, they pick their own name? <laughs> Adam, that is so amazing. <laughs> because when I got a divorce, I changed my name. <laughs> I don't yeah. think you knew that. <laughs> I didn't. Just the last name or also the first name? Both names. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So... Uh, Rosie Dow, which is what, what is on some of my books, was my original name. That was my married name. Yep. And then in 2011, I changed my name to Lana McCara. Yeah. So I have known so many people who have come to a certain point in their life and made a name change according uh -huh. to their own their own uh, identity, whatever they felt for themselves. Uh, that And when you do that, what happened to me was I went into some intense therapy because I was really traumatized. This is before the stalker, um, you know, through, about the marriage and everything, my, my growing up days. Um, and I had gone through such a major shift in this weekend intensive that I went to. That at the end of the weekend, I said, I, I, I got it in a meditation spirit again. Spirit said to me, you need to change your name so you can shift this. If you don't change your name, you're going to be stuck in that energy. But if you change your name, you're going to have a fresh start. And I came out of that meditation. I said, I'm changing my name. Now, here was the deal. I had half a million books sold by that point with my old name on them. Uh-huh. And I thought about that for probably a minute. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I have 19 years of search engine legacy on the name I have now. Yeah. See, see, but um, you don't lose that. And what I did was I put one of them in parentheses. So both of them come up, you know, in my Facebook and my, my LinkedIn and so forth. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it did an amazing 
shift in my life. And my subconscious, I might have taken a week to answer to it and feel like I'm Lana, but it wasn't very long at all. Just a few days and I was Lana and I'm Lana and it has been a wonderful thing. It would, wouldn't it be wonderful if, you know, at age 25, you could have a time when you could just do that if you wanted to, it would be great. It would be a rite of passage. Pick your name. I think some cultures actually do that. They are, they, they, as a matter of fact, they, they do. Uh, okay. Uh, for our listeners, this is going to go on an extra couple of minutes because I want to develop this a little bit further. Um, uh, Cause we're actually technically out of time, but uh, this is going to be like that one episode of the family feud where Richard Dawson just couldn't stop laughing and he had to have them turn the uh, timer off to give the contestant a chance. Um, but because uh, it's kind of funny in a way that, and I was raised in the Catholic church. I, and one of the rituals of Roman Catholicism is once you reach a certain age, you, you go through a sacrament known as confirmation which is confirmation that you are now considered an adult capable of making their own choices in the eyes of God. It typically happens when you're like 13 or 14. Now, part of that is you choose a confirmation name. I wanted to use the confirmation name George, as in St. George, the dragon slayer. Mm -hmm. And I was told that if I didn't use the name Joseph, that I would not be that I would not get a confirmation party and there would be other consequences to be determined because yeah. somebody else felt I should use the name Joseph. Wow. Okay. So this is the, now the relative that did this to me is dead. So, you know, I, this isn't anybody who's living who might be in, listening, but, uh, and I, and I've shared this before, but the, look at this. This is supposed to be the ritual that establishes literally my ability to make cognizant decisions in the eyes of the Lord. And I'm being denied the cornerstone keystone piece of that equation, which is I get to pick the name. Yeah. What I heard is, oh, well, if you, if you know my age, I was born in 1976. So what they told me is, oh, you just want the name George because of George Bush. No. I want because of St. George the Dragon Slayer, who I read about in those encyclopedias after school, by the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is a lot of power in a name. It is part of your identity. Right. Identity. And uh, yeah. And, 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 and if you want to speak about my name, uh, the name that I currently, that you know me as, is not really my family name. My paternal grandfather, for reasons, the, there are several stories around it, I don't know what the facts are, took his stepfather's last name a few months after he himself got married. My actual, my actual family name is Jumei, and, uh, I, and, I, and I like to say is my uncle, who also changed his name back to Jumais, would say, uh, I'm Jumei by blood. Hmm. So the so the so the various uh, descendants of the of the homie or hom as it was originally named uh, family that came from France through Nova Scotia and then spread all over the United States and they're based in Ohio they have all kinds of genealogy groups and I'm involved in some of those and uh, and every and every time they mention that I say oh I'm Jume but I'm Jume by blood uh, I I'm the descendant of James's stepson. Mm. And, and, 
and what I was very happy to see is eventually they put a sprout in that section of the family tree that acknowledged the Jume line. Uh, they, I, I think they got a number of complaints saying, no, James wasn't our great grandfather. He was a, he was a good man, but he was uh, grandpap's stepdad. Wow. So when, when people want to talk about my name, I just say, which one? Because I have this Southern name that I could take back. Mm. Here's another piece of irony. What's the name of my book? Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. One of my first cousins who took the Jumay name back, if you look him up, you, one of the most common pictures you'll find of him, and uh, it's been annexed by Getty Images, among others, is a picture of him. His name is Dan Jumay. Uh, a picture of him wearing the Groundhog costume at the Groundhog Day festivities in Punxsutawney. <laughs> now that is funny. <laughs> and from a financial perspective, in terms of sheer amount of dollars in the bank, he's actually the ultimate family success story. He's, he's, a, he's been profiled on CNN and among others for his success in investments and his uh, various properties that he owns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we can talk about my name all day long, and I'll ask you which one. See, that, that, that almost incoherent, rambling sort of journey there just shows that a person's name can be a very fluid concept. And who are we to say what a person's name is other than the person themselves? Like, when I do do this uh, historical novel, I've already picked a pseudonym to use for it. Mm -hmm. It won't be under my own name. Not that I'll care that anybody knows uh, that I wrote it, but... Uh, I just, uh, for various reasons that are beyond the scope of our conversation here, I just feel it'll be a more powerful product if I do it under a different name. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to say the name just because I don't want anybody to take that pseudonym and write a, a book about a fictional Latin American dictator until I get mine done. <laughs> well, I think George Jamey has a really good ring to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, yeah, but I wouldn't use George as the first name. I've also picked an, another name. If I were ever to go to the courthouse and say, "Give me another name," mm. yeah, it is important because my grandfather was adopted. Yeah, my father's father was adopted, so our family name wasn't my maiden name. We didn't know what it was for a while. Right. And then eventually, we did find out. But you know, I always had that unsettled feeling of. What is my name, really? So, right. Yeah, it's important. I kind of feel I kind of feel the same way, which is why I'm beginning the social experiment of asking. Um, number one, number one is: Are people obligated to use the name that their parents gave them? And furthermore, either way, should there be a step in the maturity process where people ritually decide? whether to keep that name or pick a new one. As in, it's a conscious decision. It's hand to you. When you get to a certain age, you say, this is, this is the name you've used up until now. You want to keep it or you want to pick another one? Now's, mm -hmm. a ch now's your chance. And the reason I would recommend doing that is because changing your name, as you know, is a legal process. So if you just establish it, everybody's going to do it at about the same time in their progress, then they can 
create a simplified mechanism that says, okay, well, you're doing this when you graduate from high school. So along with the diploma, you're also going to click a button to confirm your name or pick a new one. Let's do this now before we get into your student loans. Yeah. Yeah. It would be, uh, I think, very empowering. Yeah. Yeah. Could be. Could be. All right. So let's, uh, so let's wrap up here. And, uh, and again, I'll, I'll keep you all posted as I do this experiment more and more. I'm really intrigued about it. Uh, Laura, I just want to make sure that people know where to visit you. So let me just get to my notes here, which I kind of strayed away from as I was, uh, as I was uh, randomly Googling throughout our conversation here. It's part of the reason we're an audio only show. We're a mastermind format and I get ideas and inspirations like, oh, and I'm typing as, you, as I go along. So what I want to do is I want to encourage everybody to visit Lana's website, which is at Lana Macera, L-A-N-A-M-C-A-R-A.com. And uh, then what I also encourage you to do is look in the show notes for this episode. And you are going to see a link where you can sign up for a free masterclass on how to write an impact-driven fiction novel that sells so i'll read it out loud uh there may be a short url and if there is just jump in laura i have it as lana lana mick uh, lana yeah, it's very uh, complex the, 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 just look in the show notes look in the show notes <laughs> yeah it's yeah. it's it's there and it's there and if you can't find it just contact laura at the website i gave you tell her you heard her on the business creators radio show and say give me that master class and she will zip it over to you does that sound like a deal beautiful can we work with that deal i mean if, if, if we just made a tremendous deal absolutely it's awesome. all right all right, so Lana McArl, always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for being with us once again. It's been an honor, and believe me, particularly in this case in education. Thank you so much. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time... Have a great day. Take care.